In 2016, Oxford Dictionaries crowned the word post-truth as the word of the year. That was seven years ago. Uh, post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are far less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. Uh, the idea of objective truth, which transcends individual perspectives, has become increasingly irrelevant. People today often use phrases like, well, this is my truth. You can live your truth. Suggesting not that we have different perspectives on the truth, but rather that truth is relative to each person. In our cultural arrogance, we have determined that every person has a right to define truth for ourselves, as long as you believe what you're supposed to. Christianity, on the other hand, is a religion founded upon the very idea of truth, objective fact, and history. It is a religion founded upon the claim that 2,000 years ago the eternal God took on flesh, died on the cross for sinners, and rose again for our justification because he loved us. In our text today, Jesus grounds his promise to you of everlasting life with him in the truth that he is the Son of God. He makes the kind of claims that only God can truly make. And we'll see that these are not claims that can simply be dismissed to the realm of what's true for you. Because of what Jesus is saying, he either is who he says he is, in which case you should bow down before him, or he's a raving lunatic who's misled billions for two millennia, in which case he's the greatest con man in the history of humanity. Christianity has always maintained the importance of doctrine or right belief because we believe there is such a thing as objective truth. And God is the one who defines such truth. Now, in many sermons, uh, I am calling on you to do something as a result of the sermon. Today, I'm largely calling on you to believe something, to believe in truth and believe the truth. Because everything else flows from that. Today, we are going to consider how Jesus uses a controversy over the Sabbath in Jerusalem to teach us about the nature of God himself. And you will have to determine whether you think he's telling the truth. So pick up with me in verse 16. We'll read a short passage and then pray. Chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking to, all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our gracious Father, the one who spoke all things into existence and upholds the world with the power of your might. We come before you humbly today, not as those who are here on account of our own righteousness, but as those who have been saved by your grace. 
Jesus, we pray you would speak to us this morning through your word. We pray you would cut us to the heart, draw us into repentance so that we can receive your mercies anew, which you promise are new every morning. Lord, fill our hearts with joy as we behold the one who died to save sinners. And speak through me by your spirit so that we may all rejoice in the love that you've demonstrated for your enemies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to briefly recap last week, because last week we covered uh, the first part of this two-part sermon series. Uh, If you're visiting, we here at this church allow the Bible to set our agenda, and so we're walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, Last week, if you recall, Jesus sought out a paralyzed man lying by a pool. Uh, He asked him if he wanted to be healed, and then he healed the man, instructing him to take up his mat and to walk. Well, the man was healed because Jesus can do that sort of thing. And so he takes up his mat and he begins walking. Well, enter the religious leaders of that day and they behold this formerly paralyzed man who is now walking. And rather than being really excited that this man had been healed, they get really, really upset. Why? Because they think that this man is violating the Sabbath. Now, As we looked at last week, we saw he actually wasn't violating the Sabbath as God had revealed in Exodus chapter 20, but he had violated their interpretation, which had been preserved in oral tradition. And so the man was perfectly fine. Nevertheless, the man points out it was Jesus who healed him, and so then the Jewish leaders began persecuting Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument and you say something that was true, but it was like the wrong thing to say. Well, Jesus does that. Of course, everything Jesus says is the right thing, but he says it and their heads explode. And what he says is, oh yeah, by the way, guys, my father's been working until now and so am I. And in doing so, Jesus is claiming, yes, not only did I violate the Sabbath, I worked on the Sabbath, but I can do so because I am God. So, They persecute him because he's calling God his father. He's claiming to be equal with God. And Jesus denies none of this. In our passage today, Jesus is going to do two things. Jesus is going to go on the defensive. And he's going to ground who he is, uh, ground his defense in the truth about his identity. That he is united with God the Father. We'll see they have a unity of will, a unity in judgment, and a unity of witness. And then our second point today, we'll see that uh, Jesus goes on the offensive, explaining why it is that they don't actually believe in him. So pick up with me in verse 19. We're going to keep reading. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. (laughs) Not used to having a fan, sorry. Greater works than these. Let me find where I am again. Fan's nice, but you've got to watch out with your Bible. All right. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This morning we have a remarkable opportunity to hear about the nature of God from God himself. 
Why do we believe what we believe about Jesus? We find it right here. Now, in life, if we find somebody important or if we find something interesting, uh, we often dedicate large amounts of time to consuming data about it. If uh, you really love famous investors, you might find yourself reading everything they put out every quarter. Uh, some people love sports and spend way too much time uh, reading about football and watching their team lose in excruciating ways. It's just a confession. Some people spend hours watching reality TV or scrolling their favorite Instagram influencers. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with this, this morning you have the opportunity to consume truth about the most important person in the universe, God himself. I want to ask you, what could possibly be more important than contemplating your creator? than getting to know God as he truly is. Not the God of your imagination, not the God of popular culture, but God as he has revealed himself to be. Dear brothers and sisters, God wants to speak to you this morning. He wants to reveal himself to you as he truly is. And it's right here in John chapter 5. So I'd encourage you to just drink it in. So, the claim last week was, Jesus, you violated the Sabbath, thus you violated the will of God. Jesus responds by, by claiming to be God, which, you know, is a, a pretty good trump card. Pretty much wins every argument right there. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you use it, uh, but it works when Jesus does. And so in verses 19 to 23, uh, Jesus is defending himself against the charge that he could possibly be capable of violating God's will. And the argument is basically, I'm united with the Father. We have a single will. How can I be violating the will of God? Now, as Jesus explains the nature of God, we'll see that God is revealing himself as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this morning, if you have trouble understanding how God can be three in one, Join the club. <laughs> Augustine, the great theologian of the early church and one who wrote thousands of pages on the nature of the Trinity, says this, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. But that doesn't have to bother you. God is infinite. You are finite. And so there are many mysteries which God maintains to himself, many mysteries which are beyond human comprehension, though in our hubris we want to be able to explore them. So why in the world would we assume that we could understand everything there is about God? And so here Jesus is comparing the relationship between the first two members of the Trinity to that of a father and of a, a son. Now children, as you know, uh, watch everything their parents do and, and mimic it. Uh, you've, I may have told the story before of how I was driving one day and came to a red light and uh, the red light turned green, the guy in front of me, I don't know, he was texting or something, and so as I was preparing to lovingly lay on the horn to let him know it was time to go, I heard a three-year-old voice behind me saying, what are you doing? Move! It was there I knew I needed to talk to my wife about the example she was setting for our children <laughs> when she was driving. Jokes aside, we can be positive or negative examples for our children to mimic, but God the Father is only a positive example. 
Jesus says, I don't do things of my own accord, but I see what my Father is doing and what He does, I do. He loves me and He shows me all that He does. Jesus' point is, how can I violate the will of God when all I do is His will? And by the way, the things that the Father does and the things that I'm doing, they're intended for you to see our works and sit back and be amazed and sit back and marvel, wow, that's an incredible God. That's the heart of worship, is ascribing to God the glory due His name. Well, Jesus continues in verse 21, and what He's doing is He's, he's turning to these people, He says, you know all of these things about God that are true in the Old Testament, and He appropriates these things to Himself. Now, they understood that God alone holds the power of life and death. That was clear in the Old Testament. But Jesus in verse 21 says, I too hold the power of life and death. So this God of the Old Testament who you claim to revere, I am. In verse 22, he does the same thing. In the Old Testament, God is consistently presented as the judge of humanity. For example, Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Now, that's one of only about 4,000 examples of that. But Jesus is saying that God the Father has given God the Son the right to judge all of humanity. So, Jesus is saying this other thing that God does, by the way, that's what I do. This guy you're persecuting, you're persecuting the judge of humanity. Now, why does God give judgment to the Son? Verse 23 tells us, so that all might honor the Son as they honor the Father. And vice versa, if you don't honor the Son, you dishonor the Father. Again, this makes sense, right? If, if your child is playing baseball out in a field and they make an excruciating error that costs them the game, maybe their coach goes out and chews them out in front of everyone and humiliates them. Well, the, the coach has just dishonored the child but you can probably be sure he's going to be hearing from Mother Bear, who was also dishonored. And he's going to get an earful. Jesus says, if you dishonor me and I, I'm one with God the Father, then you have dishonored my Father. In other words, he's saying to these people, you need to approach me like you approach God because I am God. Now, if there's any doubt that Jesus was claiming to be God it should be put to rest on this first section alone. Many people in our day and throughout history have been happy to uh, see Jesus as one of many uh, fantastic moral examples for us to follow, perhaps even a prophet. But listen, Jesus, Jesus was not crucified for being a good moral example. Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God and they didn't believe him. And they charged him with blasphemy. Dear friends, this is why Christianity is so concerned with truth. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, you really only have three options when it comes to the person of Jesus. Either Jesus is a liar, in which case you should hate him. He's a lunatic, in which case you should ignore him. Or he actually is who he claimed to be, in which case you should bow down before him. The option which is not available to us is that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. And so I want to ask you this morning, as you're listening to the Word of God, do you honor the Son and so honor the Father? Our Scripture tells us 
that if you are dishonoring the Son, you are dishonoring the one who holds all judgment. And it's this idea of judgment which brings us to our next subpoint today, unity and judgment. Pick up with me in verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, In our day, we have rejected the idea of a transcendent God and set ourselves up as our own gods. You are told that only you can truly judge yourself, which is why you're also told that the most important thing for you is to simply accept yourself, because your judgment of yourself is the only judgment that truly matters. And if someone doesn't accept your behavior, then that person is being judgy and should be rejected. Because if somebody isn't accepting of how I perceive myself, then they've put my judgment of myself at risk. And so I need everyone around me to agree with my judgment. Well, here Jesus is immensely helpful for us in this confused day. Jesus frees us from the need to pretend like we've got everything together, from having to accept what is unacceptable. Jesus frees us from the pressure of trying to be our own gods by pointing out that there is a God who will one day judge the living and the dead. And on that day, dear friends, your judgment of yourself will not matter one bit. God holds the power of life and death, and God holds your eternal destination in his hands. Now, the Bible is unambiguous that we are all sinners, that none of us is righteous because of our own deeds, but rather that if we're to be judged on our own, we'll be found guilty of failing to honor him and failing to obey him. Regardless of how you judge yourself, his judgment is perfect, and it is the only one that matters. To face his judgment on your own is to face the wrath of God against sinners. But dear friends, this is why verse 24 and verses like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. This is why this is the sweetest news you'll ever hear. Jesus says, I am the judge. I will judge all of humanity. But hear the good news. Hear the good news of Christianity in a single verse, verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Jesus says there is no way for you to make yourself right with God. You can spend your life 
attempting good deeds and it will never happen. There's no way for you to earn God's favor. But God has made a way for you to be reconciled with Him. And it's through Jesus. Because Jesus lived the life you were called to live and He died on the cross and He rose again. And God offers you eternal life with Him starting right now as a gift. But here's the catch. It cannot be earned. It has to be received by faith as a gift. And what does Jesus say? Who receives that life? The one who hears and believes. Not the one who hears and tries to clean himself up, but the one who hears and believes. Don't believe Jesus? Well, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. I think we have a slide for this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Yes, there's a coming judgment, but Christ has made a way for you to enter into the everlasting joy of your heaven, heavenly Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. Now Jesus continues... And Jesus really likes talking about resurrection, so he's going to talk about two kinds of resurrection now. Spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection. The first we see in 25 and 26, he says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the, as the Father has life in himself, so also he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus claims that the Son also possesses life in Himself. Just as God breathed life in humanity, so life is something which the Son possesses and gives to whom He will. And He says there's an hour coming and now which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now that's kind of confusing. It says it's coming and it's now. Well, what are we talking about? Which is it, Jesus? Well, He says it's both. What does He mean by that? On the one hand, he's talking about a spiritual resurrection. One of the consistent metaphors in Scripture with regard to conversion is that of somebody going from spiritual death to spiritual life. Upon trusting in Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they see things anew and they have new desires. Jesus calls them a new creation. They've been resurrected from their spiritual death. And that's what he's saying right now. Those who hear the voice of Christ and believe enter into that eternal life now, which is why he says in verse 24, the one who believes has eternal life. It's not just some future thing. Let me ask you, do you hear the voice of the Son of God this morning? He's calling to you. He's calling on you, if you haven't already, to believe in Him. But he also says an hour is coming. And here we see Jesus is speaking of judgment day, of this day long in the future, or sometime in the future, in which God will judge the living and the dead. Here he speaks of physical resurrection, and I hope that you take him seriously. Because here he gives us a sobering look at the destiny of mankind. There will come a day, he says, when the dead will hear his voice. His voice shall call the dead up from the graves and they will be face to face with the God whom they either trusted in and loved or who they rejected and despised. 
And it says here that those who have done good will rise to life, but those who have done evil will rise to be judged. Now, I recognize this too is not a very popular notion, the idea of a final judgment, even just the idea of a, of a binary. We hate binaries nowadays. But something does not have to be popular to be true. God knows every single thing you and I have ever done or failed to do. And He will hold you accountable unless Christ has paid the penalty for you. You say, well, what about this business about doing good and doing evil? That sounds like works righteousness, Pastor. I thought it was saved by grace through faith. Sounds like I'll be saved if I work hard at doing good. No, dear friends, this is not contradicting John 3.16 or the rest of the New Testament or verse 24, which says it's the one who hears and believes who enters into life eternal and escapes the judgment. You see, it is faith alone which saves a person, and yet the faith which saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by this spiritual resurrection. In other words, Jesus isn't just a savior for the future, dear friends. Jesus is a savior for now. He changes you when he saves you. You can only be saved by your grace, but if you are saved by his grace, you're going to want to live differently. You're going to want to obey him. You're going to want to honor him in ways that you never thought possible. And you will be concerned with doing good such that Jesus on the day of judgment can say that those who believed in him and were saved were also those who did good. Again, if you don't believe Jesus' words for some reason, let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2. We have a slide, the very next verse, right? So Paul has just said it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift. You can't earn it. It's not by works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why are we created in Christ Jesus? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. Listen, you can't be saved by good works, but they are the result of Christ saving you. It's a wonderful gospel truth. Listen, if you tell me that you are a collector of fine wines, then if I come to your house, I expect to find a cellar. If you tell me that you are an avid golfer, then I expect to find golf clubs in your garage. And if we go play together, I expect you to blow me out of the water because I'm terrible at golf. Well, if you tell me that you believe in the Son of God, that he died for your sins, rose for your justification, that you belong to him, that you are a child of God, an heir to his kingdom, that even now you possess eternal life. I'm going to expect to find some kind of fruit, some kind of evidence that you belong to him. That's one of the reasons we have church membership, to help you make sure of that. And it's why I would encourage you, if you are in Christ, to pursue church membership so the church can get behind you and say, yes, we can see this person is trusting Christ and living in a way that shows Christ has radically changed their heart. And they will rise one day to life eternal without fear of judgment. The last thing we want to note here in verse 30 is that though the Father has given all judgment to the Son, 
The Son, nevertheless, judges according to the Father's will. There's no separation in God. There is a single will. They are united. So let's cover what we've said so far. Jesus has now claimed to be God. As God, he's claimed to be the judge of mankind, and he's offered salvation freely to all who will believe. And these are bold statements. And you should only believe them if God is the one who's saying them. So, what does Jesus do now? He presents four witnesses which testify to the truth of what he is saying. Let's consider the unity of testimony in verses 31 to 40. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's fair to say that Jesus subverted expectations of what the Messiah would be. He was not like Batman, the Messiah people were hoping for, but he was the one that they needed. But maybe this morning you are having a little trouble accepting what Jesus says about himself. You'd like it to be true, or at least you're open to the possibility, but I get it, that's a big step of faith to make. It was certainly a step for them. They were looking at this young Jewish man and he was claiming to be God. But dear friends, if you think there's a chance that this could be true, I implore you to exhaust yourself searching the scriptures to find out if it is. Consider what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus, on his part, is going to provide these four witnesses but let's be clear here, God doesn't have to justify himself or prove anything to us. Jesus says, I don't need the testimony, the witness of any person, but I am going to provide these because I want you to be saved. This is an act of divine accommodation. Jesus loves the skeptical. Jesus loves them to, enough to reason with them. And if you're not convinced of Christ yet, I'm glad you're here and Jesus is glad that you're here. And he wants you to wrestle through this so that you might come to a saving faith in him. And Jesus starts by saying, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And by that, what he means is you will not accept it as true. Why? Because there is this principle that a testimony is established by two or three witnesses and you don't count as a witness for yourself. Now, of course, God transcends that principle, but Jesus is accommodating them. So he provides four additional. The first witness he provides is John the Baptist. He points out that these people were thrilled 
when John first came on the scene. 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi to John the Baptist. And then John comes speaking the word of God and everybody loses their minds. They're so happy to be hearing from God again until John's ministry comes to an end and he points to this guy, Jesus, and he says, everyone, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that's why Jesus says, you are, you are eager to live in his light for a time until he, until he started pointing people to me. The second witness Jesus provides is his own miraculous works, all of his works, the works that his father gave him to do. In his day, Jesus spent three years preaching and teaching. And in his teaching, people recognized a profound and divine wisdom that no one else could match. If you wonder if Jesus could be the Christ, I encourage you to read the Gospels, to, to study them, and you'll see what I mean. His teaching is unlike anything else you'll find anywhere else. It is profound, but more so, it is life-giving. In the words of Jesus, you will find your heart strangely warmed to the truths of God, desiring to know Him and worship Him. It is a life-giving word. Of course, Jesus also validated His message and His teaching with miraculous works. He's the guy who turned water into wine. He's the guy who healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. And this entire controversy was started because he told a paralyzed man to get up and walk. That alone should merit faith in his persecutors. But we'll see that he'll also call the dead to life. In chapter 11, when he tells Lazarus, four days dead, to walk out of his tomb. And of course, he will conquer death himself after dying on a cross. Jesus says, my works testify to my claim. Well, the last two witnesses he gives are the Father and the Scriptures. I'd like to treat them together. Christianity and Judaism before us recognized that for us to truly know God, he has to reveal himself to us. Now, we know that from looking at the world, we can recognize that there is a God, but to know Him, we need Him to reveal Himself. And that begs the question, how does God reveal Himself to His people? We see this in Hebrews chapter 1. We have a slide for this. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, how did God speak to us? By His Son. How does one hear the voice of God? Well, it says he was in the habit of speaking to his people through the prophets. And many, though not all of these prophecies, were recorded into what we now have as the Old Testament. And they and we recognize that as Scripture. And Jesus is saying, these Scriptures bear witness to me. We saw that when Craig preached on Luke chapter 24. The Old Testament is meant to point us to Christ, but the sad truth, and don't let this be true of you, the sad truth is that those religious experts who were poring over the Scriptures, which was God's revelation to His people, Jesus says, you've never heard the voice of God. You've never seen His form. They read His Word, but they did not have His Word abiding in them. 
And so they actually rejected the very one that God sent to them. They rejected the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. They had rejected Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men, John 1. Listen, brothers and sisters, these were religious people who rejected Jesus. These were experts in the Old Testament. Maybe you grew up in church and this is all old news to you. Listen, there's a danger in studying the Word of God. And that danger is that you treat it like a subject to be mastered rather than God speaking to you to master you. These people knew the Scriptures but they didn't know God. Jesus says, if you knew the Father, you would rejoice in the one whom he sent. The scriptures testify about me, and you reject the one God sent. God speaks through his word, dear friends. Do you hear his voice? Well, Jesus provided four witnesses to himself, John, his work, the Father, and the Scriptures. But he says to them in verse 40, you don't even desire to come to me that you may have life. And so that brings us to our last point of the day. Why is it that they do not desire to come to Christ that they may have life? Jesus goes on offense here. Pick up with me in verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I do know that you don't have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Why do they reject Jesus? Well, he says, first of all, that he does not seek the glory that comes from people. That's an indictment on them. I'm not trying to please people like you are, he says. I'm doing the work my Father sent me to do. And you reject me because I come in my Father's name. He says, it's because I claim to be God that you reject me. If another came claiming to be the Messiah in his own name, you would accept him with open arms. And we have plenty of historical examples of messiahs who came and who were accepted until they were no longer. And yet their movements fizzled out and nothing came of them, not with Christianity. So we have to ask, why is it? Just put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment, right? This is before the crucifixion. Why would Jesus insist that he's the Son of God knowing how offensive it would be and how they would reject him because of it, knowing ultimately that it was his claim to divinity that would get him sent to the cross for blasphemy. Why would he still go on claiming that? 
It makes no sense unless, unless it's true. And Jesus told the truth because he loved the Father and because he loved you. Jesus points out that they are in love with the glory that comes with others. They're not seeking praise from God. And that's why Jesus goes back to Moses. He says, Moses is going to be the one who's accusing you on Judgment Day, not me. Why? Because you're putting your hope in Moses. Or in other words, they're putting their hope in their own efforts at doing good works according to the law of Moses. It's like an ancient form of virtue signaling. You can read Jesus' remarks about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. They loved to be seen doing good. They desperately wanted to be seen as righteous because of their own self-discipline, their own hard work. But there's no such thing. The only way to approach God is on your knees. Jesus says, Moses, the one in whom you hope, he wrote of me. And if you knew that, you'd recognize the law was never intended for you to try to make yourself righteous by following it. The law is there so that you can see you can't keep it, and you would recognize that you need the mercy and grace which I freely offer you. You cannot earn your way to God. It was meant to humble you. But Jesus is pointing out, you love the glory that comes from others. And the person who seeks his own glory cannot accept the gift of grace. Do you realize this? That the pursuit of your own glory and the pursuit of God's glory are mutually exclusive. One cannot pursue both. And I can tell you as one who stands in the shoes of the religious leaders of that day, I regularly feel that tension in my own heart. I come up here to proclaim the excellencies of God, and yet deep down there's part of me. At the end of the sermon, I want you to think how brilliant, how witty, what a, an amazingly crafted sermon that was. But what I should be thinking to myself, and what I would hope your response to the sermon is, is wow, what an amazing God what wondrous love that he should die for his enemies, that he should reveal himself, that he should call me to himself and love me despite what I've done. My job is to please God, to please God even when I say something that might offend you. But listen, you're not immune to this either, seeking glory for yourself. We all want to be admired. We all like hearing praise. We want people to like us. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, the world is not going to celebrate you for being a Christian. With every passing year, the teachings of Jesus Christ look more and more foreign in Western society. In fact, his teachings are increasingly viewed as evil and harmful, and those who abide by them are likewise. But Jesus told us that. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And so you have to decide for yourself, whose praise do you desire? Who are you going to try to impress? God or the world? You say, Pastor, why should I obey the God I cannot see when it offends those around me? Why should I proclaim the good news of the gospel that Christ alone saves when it's likely to anger my family and my friends? 
Pastor, why should I believe Christianity when it has never been less popular in the West? Because it's true. You see, Jesus could have saved himself a whole lot of heartache and nails and spears if he had backed off this whole Son of God thing. But he didn't because he loved you and he loved pleasing God the Father. And he was united with the Father. Brothers and sisters, we may live in a post-truth world, but we have a remarkable opportunity to stand as loving beacons to the truth. I hope you'll take time today to reflect on these glorious truths about the nature of your Creator, which Jesus has given us this morning. And I pray that you'll love him all the more as you get to know him better so that you can honor the Son as you honor the Father. Let's pray.